Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, we finish up our series around the world, heading to South America and to the soccer-crazed country of Brazil. How has the world's game defined the culture of Brazil? Does soccer truly mean everything to that country? My name is Chad Wiley, and with me to discuss all of this is John Nekrasov. And John, how are you today? How was your Thanksgiving? How is it to just be home for a little bit? It has been absolutely tremendous, Chad. Thanksgiving was excellent. It was wonderful to have some lovely Thanksgiving food in my stomach, some nice pies throughout the week and leftovers. Um, it snowed, I guess it was last night, for the first time in quite a while. You know, it was Tennessee flurries, not real snow for any of you northerners who are listening, but it's 2020, and given that it is 2020, I will take any kind of snow. The Christmas music is playing in our house. The Christmas tree is up. We're in a festive mood, and I get to read books and watch football and European football next to a Christmas tree. Are you it's reading just, War and Peace for like the 18th time, or what are, you, what are you reading? No, I'm actually reading Pride and Prejudice right now. Oh. Yeah. What a classic man. I love the classics. I'm also reading a book I made a reference numerous times throughout this episode, The Ball is Round, which I'm about like a third of the way through a thousand page history of the global. Is the, is the ball round, John? Can the you ball confirm? is actually a triangle, but in well, case you guys confusing. were wondering, yeah, that, that makes things very confusing. So all in all, I'm doing pretty well. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm also getting to enjoy the beauty of books. John, I go through these oh. phases where... I, I read, like, I have three genres of books, which are politics, history, and then sports. And right now I'm very much in, like, the politics phase and history. And so mm-hmm. I finished up last week, I finished the memoir of Benjamin Bradley, who was editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. And then after that, I read Divided We Fall, an analysis of the future of America by David French, which has scary implications for the world. And now I'm diving into the newly released memoir of POTUS 44, A Promised Land by Barack Obama. And I, I'm honestly, with everything I have going on in my life, I'm surprising myself with the pace with which I can read when I get off the Xbox and actually get into books. See, I, I love that. I've The problem is, you know, as much as this is a cultural issues podcast, I increasingly am canceling politics in my everyday life. Um, as Christmas is arriving, it's just I just have no desire to think about it. Election season's over, and I'd much rather play Jedi Fallen Order, which is what I was doing before we recorded this podcast, and since I never got around to playing the game. Um, so that's that's basically me. Well, I'll make sure to send you a copy of Divided We Fall for Christmas so you can get into the existential crisis of America just like I did. Oh, yeah. Maybe I'll maybe I'll send you a Ben Shapiro book in exchange. We'll do yeah, a cultural book exchange. Cultural swap. <laughs> <laughs> John, on a, I guess, hard to transition to note, as yeah. we get into this discussion about Brazil, we also have not talked since Diego Maradona passed away at the age of 60. He was probably, I'm going to say, the greatest soccer player of all time. Many people would agree. Some would disagree, but many would agree with that. Obviously, a legend of South America as well, a different country, Argentina, not Brazil, but still... Uh, something that rocked South America, something that rocked the world. And I know that you have some especially fond memories of, obviously, neither of us watched him live, but just going back and understanding his importance to the world and to, you know, both of our favorite sports. It's fascinating, like you said, because I did not, I mean, he 
stopped playing in the 80s. So I never like saw him at his prime. He actually stopped playing in the 90s. But anyway, I never saw him in his prime. I never got to experience like what he gave to the game beyond like the highlight reels and the stories that everyone's telling and podcasts and news articles around the world right now where, you know, you really feel just how prominent of a example he set within the soccer world. Like my dad grew up not caring about sports at all in Soviet Russia, but he knew one soccer player and that soccer player was Diego Maradona. Um, And so I just, I think kind of highlights how much of an impact he had, not just on like the soccer world, but the world at large, Um, you know, that he really had the kind of impact globally that someone like Kobe had in America. It's been strange to see, you know, how someone's legacy, especially with how complicated it was, you know, where he was struggling with addiction and all kinds of personal struggles after his career, just to see, you know, how someone struggles with the incredible talent that they've been given. So if you guys, you know, maybe don't know much about him, I'd encourage you. uh, I shared an article about him on my personal Twitter. I'd encourage you to read that, look up some highlights of his because he just was a tremendous soccer player all around. Yeah, what kind of struck me about Diego Maradona this week, going through all of the videos and seeing everything that everyone had to say, is that he really is a type of player that in today's world is becoming harder to replicate because Mm -hmm. sports, this is true in soccer, this is really true in all sports. Sports are becoming much more about physicality and your physique than it is about skill. And that translates across all sports. You know, Kyrie Irving in basketball is one of the most skilled players of all time. And, you know, he's still, like, a big, strong guy, but he's not one of the greatest players. And when you look at who, like, the greatest player in basketball right now, LeBron, he's great mostly just because he's a beast and he Mm -hmm. takes care of his body. And we see that trend in soccer as well where soccer players don't really look like Diego Maradona anymore. He was short. He was a little bit bigger. You know, he wasn't didn't look super muscular. He didn't look like Cristiano Ronaldo or, or Zlatan Ibrahimovic or someone like that. Yet he was so skilled that he was better than everybody else. And it wasn't because he was more imposing. It was just because he was better. You know, for every Zlatan Ibrahimovic, though, there's going to be a people who can imitate that, like Erling Holland. For every Cristiano Ronaldo, there's going to be someone who can be just that big and strong and jump just that high. Mm. But the only person I can think of who's even remotely close to Diego Maradona is Lionel Messi. And even he is a little bit faster and stronger than Diego Maradona was. And so I just think that the way he played the game is something that when you watch his highlights, we don't see it anymore. And it's a type of it's a type of player and it's the type of position that is kind of being moved out of the modern game. And that makes him as a person, I think, so much more important to the sport as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that's why people talk about the magic of Maradona, you know, the things he could do with the ball, the fear that people had when he started running with the ball, um, like that iconic goal in 1986 that he scored against England, just dribbling through basically the entire you mean the hand, the hand one or the other one? The other one. Oh, okay. No, the hand is an example of his complicated relationship to the world at large. Um, if you guys haven't heard of the hand of God goal, Maradona's one of his most famous contributions to world soccer is that in, I believe, the quarterfinal of the 86 World Cup, he scored against England by essentially punching the goal, punching the ball ahead above the goalie's head into the goal, and the referee didn't see it. 
Uh, and then Maradona basically said, you know, it was the hand of God that scored. And English people are still angry to this day. Yeah, and um, then in that same game, he scored the other goal you're talking about. Right. And so I think that game kind of, a lot of people have talked about it as summing up his career in a lot of ways. Just that magic mixed with that, you know, what people like to call like the maverick personality. And he was just a phenomenal player. Um, so it's it's sad to see him go. It's sad to see kind of the complicated legacy he had, but a great player nevertheless. Yeah, and I think, you know, this this does in some way tie into the conversation that we're going to have because certainly during Maradona's life and still to this day, one of Brazil's primary rivals, particularly in South America, is Argentina, where Diego Maradona played. And people like Pele have come out and spoken about Maradona, people who played against him, people who have played with him. And while he played specifically for Argentina, his his impact on sports does touch into the rest of South America and the rest of the world. And that was certainly felt by tributes by many Brazilians, including, like I said, Pele and uh, and Neymar. And as we get into Brazil, John, this is kind of a country that, as far as you and I could tell, there's one sport. So we're, you know, if this, if this conversation sounds like a soccer conversation, that's because this country is a soccer country. Like, do they play any other sports? Honestly, so if we're, I'm being entirely realistic, they might. I just don't particularly care. Um, no offense to any other sports that are played in Brazil, but this is my soccer episode of this series, and I only research soccer, and I didn't even bother to look. So there could be, but you, the listeners, will have to find out because I am excited to take a deep dive into the history of Brazilian soccer. Okay, John, I'm going to step off the microphone and you, you you just take it away for 40 minutes and I'll come back to conclude at the end. All right. Bye, everyone. Have fun, John. Sounds good. All right. So, class, today we are talking about Brazil. Chad is uh, – you, you need to keep your hands on your desk where I can see them. Can I come back now? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you and can at least back. And at least somehow moderate your, your anarchy over here. I don't think it's anarchy. You're the one who's providing anarchy here. I am here with a lesson for the students today. And John, I think this is a conversation where particularly people of our generation need a lesson in Brazil Mm -hmm. because much of my understanding from the time that I've been alive and have roughly paid attention to soccer, and many people like me, Brazil and soccer from a national team perspective, has been primarily defined by disappointment. They have not succeeded at World Cups. They had that disastrous 7-1 loss to Germany. They, you know, are consistently one of the most talented teams in the world, but they don't go far in World Cups. And, you know, going into this conversation, they haven't, they've won one World Cup when I was, in my lifetime, when I was like three years old. But I didn't, I didn't know that, I didn't know that they had won five World Cups Uh, most of those in the 90s. And so this really is a situation where people like me need more education to actually understand this country because as far as our life is concerned, Brazil is not everything they're hyped up to be. Right. Yeah. What's always fascinating for me is I grew up, you know, as my soccer consciousness kind of grew, I remember people talking about Brazil a lot, right? They had last, like you said, they last won the World Cup. They've won five World Cups, which is the most out of any country. The last time they won was in 2002 in South Korea when they beat Germany. My consciousness as a soccer young kitty was that Brazil was like 
the country that every American soccer fan, like Brazil and Argentina was what everyone talked about growing up around me. Everyone just seemed like seemed it seemed to be what Americans gravitated to. But kind of as I got older, like my primary memory of Brazil in terms of soccer in my like actual consciousness is that 7-1 defeat in 2014 where, you know, Brazil was hosting the World Cup, which they hadn't done since 1950. And there was a pressure on Brazil in that game. You know, the country is still very divided. The country is very, you know, fraught with political strife. And they were hosting the World Cup surrounded by corruption scandals and whatever. And there was a pressure from the fans in that entire tournament for basically for the national team to win to save the country almost. You know, their star, Neymar, got injured. Their captain, Thiago Silva, was suspended going into that semifinal against Germany. And Germany just destroyed Brazil in that game with all the expectation that was going on. And I remember, you know, to this day, seeing those social media videos and live streams during the game of just, like, children weeping in the stadium and, like, fans just devastated in the streets. It became known, I think it was Monero as a city, and it became known as the Minerazo, which is, like, the, the calamity it's strange because I, you realize in that moment what the game means to the country of Brazil when you see that outpouring of emotion. And what's strange is that you can kind of bookend Brazilian soccer with that 2014 loss and the first time they hosted the World Cup in 1950, where basically the exact same thing happened, where they played Uruguay to decide the World Cup in 1950. Um, they had just built... That book I was talking about by David Goldblatt earlier, you know, they they just built the Maracanã, which is the was the largest stadium in the world at the time. You know, the first World Cup since the World War, and the biggest crowd ever that attended a football match was at that game, roughly two hundred thousand people. And again, the pressure of the entire country was on the Brazilian national team, and they lost. And so you have these kind of these two moments in Brazilian history bookending a huge amount of soccer success but you have these moments of emotion where political strife is tied very closely with soccer as a whole and it just demonstrates i think you know as we're getting into this conversation just how much both winning and losing means to this country yeah you kind of went a little bit through the the early history as far as organized soccer from a national team perspective dates back to about 1920s about 100 years ago in Brazil. And as you mentioned, in 1950, they had this big upset. So kind of picking it up from 1950, I feel like, John, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Brazilian soccer can kind of be defined in three different eras by three different people. So you have Pele, Mm -hmm. and he, he was kind of an era. And then Ronaldinho and Ronaldo, not the Cristiano Ronaldo, the real Ronaldo. And they were kind of an era and then we can talk about today's Brazil with Neymar kind of highlighting that era. Is that kind of a good way to kind of break it down? Yeah, I think in terms of the the way Brazilian history has unfolded, I think that works pretty well. Obviously, okay. there's other areas that have happened, right. but like those are the important ones for our consciousness. So let's start with Pele. Out of the five World Cups that Brazil has, Pele won three of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's largely considered... Again, like Diego Maradona, one of the greatest of all time. Some would say he is the greatest of all time. He was really the first global soccer superstar. And he his impact on the country, when we talk about a country that is truly soccer crazed, 
we talked about the disappointment of 1950, and it was in the 60s that Brazil kind of was able to take a lot of pride in their in their team. And, you know, as we know in America with like our women's national team, normally people like your team more when you're doing well. And mm-hmm. so the the craze of soccer in Brazil, I can kind of trace it back to him because he's when they first started actually being excellent and something that everyone in that country could be really, really proud of. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of the the phoenix from the ashes figure. If you look at that 1950 game, you're like, Brazil is in chaos. They're looking for a national identity, trying to blend lots of different races and people groups and immigrants together into this country, and they have nothing tying them together. And they're looking for that thing to be soccer. And then in 1958, the World Cup happens in Sweden, and Pele, age 17, explodes onto the world stage, wins Brazil the World Cup, contributes in 1962, even though he was injured in the final and some of the playoff games, to winning a second World Cup. And then in 1970, being part of what's often considered the greatest team in world soccer ever, to win a third. And there's this this image of like Brazil is what they call Jogo Benito, the beautiful game. You know, Brazil is where that term originates from. And Pele is kind of this figure that almost encapsulates Brazil trying to find its national identity. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and John, I think something that we're going to come back to at the very end of this conversation, but is worth at least putting a bookmark in right now is something that you can point out about Pele's career is that he played most of his time in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, he's largely considered the greatest Brazilian player of all time and is loved in his country more than someone like Ronaldinho or Neymar. And it's not just because of his World Cup success. It's because he stayed in that country, whereas Ronaldinho went to Europe. Ronaldo went to Europe. Neymar's played most of his career in Europe. And so they might whatever international success they have for Brazil they're not there domestically, but Pele was for most of his career. And I think that is interesting, and it's something that we're going to come back to at the end, and it definitely gives Pele an advantage in terms of the love he has in his country. Messi and Ronaldo have really kind of started to establish themselves in like the pantheon of the greatest players of all time, up there with Maradona and Pele. But Pele is considered by many still to be the greatest player of all time because he did kind of catapult the idea of a soccer star into a new stratosphere. Guardian journalist Jonathan Wilson talks about in his book, Inverting the Pyramid, how those 1958 and 62 World Cups kind of transformed the game of soccer where these super skillful Brazilian players just came in and just absolutely like annihilated the teams around them just purely with individual skill. And 1970 brought that even further into focus. And What's interesting about that is because players like Pele were playing in Brazil, European teams, you know, there was no internet. European teams didn't know a lot about how they were playing. And all of a sudden the Brazilian national team shows up and there's like this 17-year-old kid who's just like soccer god, you know. And that's a theme that changes, you know, as time has gone on and the internet's grown and you see Neymar playing in Brazil and then you're like, oh, this player's really good. Let's bring him over to Europe. Back then, you know, if you had a superstar, it was like a surprise weapon. You have this undercover superhero that just like shows up and you're like, oh my goodness, like this person is the greatest person I've ever seen play this game. Yeah. So let's let's fast forward to that next generation. And this might be, John, the one that makes 
you go, wow, because we have some notes written down. And when you get to, in your notes here, you talk about Ronaldinho and you say, was watching Ronaldinho highlights last night and man, what a talent. So elaborate on that and elaborate on him. Yeah, I mean, what's funny about old soccer, right? I like It's similar, like if you watch old NFL highlights you know, or old NBA highlights, like they're really good and they're really good for their time. And there are still highlights that take your breath away sometimes. But oftentimes, you know, like the skill is still kind of undeveloped. It's a lot of raw energy and a lot of learning what technique even is in the modern game as the game is developing. And Ronaldinho, the only thing I can say really is just go watch, like pause this podcast, go watch some Ronaldinho highlights and come back. Because the man, regardless of what game you're watching, that man could do things with the ball that like I can't even dream of doing in a million years. And he did them like not just like in an Instagram video, but like during games. He just take a ball and like, you know, like how a magician like will like hide coins in his hand and like pull them out behind your ear. He could do that with a ball on live TV in front of thousands of people in a stadium. And it's just it's beautiful. It's it is that man was a soccer artist and I got chills watching those highlights yesterday, even with no music, just totally muted. Yeah, and I think this this part of the conversation, this is kind of like right now, you know, in the timeline, we're kind of in the 90s and the early 2000s with Ronaldinho and Ronaldo. And this is an interesting era because this is when what you talked about earlier, John, the Brazilian way, like the Brazilian of style of playing. This is kind of when that style entered Europe. And it's a very different style of play than like the way that England first began soccer. The English game was all about creating space, be wide, don't 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 linger on the ball, pass and move, set up the easy goal and then score. And Brazilian style is kind of like, well, why pass when you can just dribble through everyone? Mm-hmm. And and this is kind of the first time when that style really begins to infiltrate the European game, and so that's also why Ronaldinho and Ronaldo were able to have such a strong effect, not just for Brazil, but for their domestic teams all throughout Europe. And I think that's at least worth noting because these are the two people that when you think Brazilian soccer, you most likely are thinking about Ronaldinho and just the way he plays because his brand became so global compared to Pele, whose brand was more local and, you know, later on Neymar, but Neymar never lived quite up to the expectations that Ronaldinho did. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, Brazil won its last two of its five World Cups, one in 94 in the U.S., which probably helped to honestly cement Brazil's place in America and, like, soccer ideas as, like, oh, Brazil's really good. Just Even though it was a pretty, like, stodgy defensive team, they still pulled it out. In 2002, Ronaldinho and Ronaldo beat Germany for that fifth World Cup. I think this era also, though, starts to highlight the beginnings of a shift of power toward Europe, right? Because now Europe's leagues have all the money. Europe's teams have all the money. You know, there was a time when Brazilian teams like Santos and Corinthians could really compete with um, European teams to attract talent, to win, you know, international tournaments. And now the Brazilian league is nowhere near that when you have a player that's super good in Brazil like Neymar was and still is, obviously. Um, someone like Gabriel Jesus, Fernandinho, 
you know, they are spotted by talents or someone like Allison, even Liverpool's goalkeeper, they're spotted immediately. They go to Europe for large transfer fees. And that affects, I think, the power of the national team to build the national infrastructure, right? So much of building that infrastructure comes down to the strength of the league and the strength of the local academies. And, you know, as you've, we've seen since 2002, you know, Brazil wasn't in the final of 2006. Um, Brazil lost to the Netherlands, who were ultimately the, the runners-up in 2010. Brazil was demolished in 2014, underperformed in 2018. You know, Brazil has some excellent players like Neymar, but I think this generation is kind of encapsulated by Neymar, who's a flashy player, a great player, but someone who maybe doesn't quite have that cutting, winning edge that you need to win trophies and maybe... Maybe the Brazilian idea needs kind of a new, in a world where everything is shaped by tactics and globalization and analysis, you can't just dribble through everybody anymore. Yeah, it's kind of, I want to kind of end this this conversation in, in Brazil, kind of picking up right where you left off about the disappointment. This current generation of Brazilian players have kind of continued what we've been talking about, that when the country depends most on the team and puts the most pressure on them, they normally let them down. John talked about it in 1950 in the World Cup against Uruguay. We talked about it again with Brazil, Germany, the 7-1 defeat. And you see it again in 2018 when that team, with all the superstars like Gabriel Jesus and Felipe Coutinho and Ricarlison and Neymar should be you know, winning World Cups on talent, but they're not. But John, there is one moment when the entire expectation of the country was on Brazil and they delivered, and specifically Neymar delivered. And that was the 2016 Olympics, which were hosted in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, and Brazil beat Germany on penalties in the final to take home the gold medal at home in the stadium filled with Brazil fans in the Olympics. And that kind of was the moment for this generation of Brazilian players. It wasn't a World Cup, but it was an Olympic gold medal over Germany in really something that meant a lot to that country, having that tournament be in that country as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about, obviously, soccer in the Olympics is it is a big deal. But, you know, when you compare that, like, it doesn't wash out the 2014 memory. Right. Um, and that's the primary... I want to say they won the Copa America last year or the year before the South American competition. And both those things are kind of highlighting like maybe Brazil's on the upswing again uh, after, you know, a couple decades of struggle. But a lot of this generation will still be marked by that failure at home. The second failure in a row, you know, to take home a World Cup on home turf. And it's, you know, I think those are kind of bookends on a Brazilian Brazil's like 20th century soccer story for a reason. And I think moving forward, you know, Brazil has to find a new soccer identity for itself. It's going to be hard to find. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to leave this conversation and I guess our trip around the world, we're going to put it on pause for now. Yep. If you, Closing if there's, yeah, if there's some other really great Brazilian sport that we just it completely ignored, let us know. And, you know, we <laughs> might give you some acknowledgement later on, but uh, John was pretty happy to just talk about soccer today. And honestly, with, with the type of country Brazil is, I didn't mind it much either. So we're going to put this 
you know, mini series on pause for a while. Maybe it's something that we'll pick back up in the future. But we do want to get back to some some normal bit of current events as sports are in full swing. John's really excited about Liberty football. I've got college basketball coming back. The NBA is right around the corner again. Everything's kicking back into full swing. Except, I guess, John, has Arsenal even started playing in the Premier League yet? Or are they still on vacation? Because I can't really tell. No, actually. they. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's like a, a U17 squad that replaced us. Um, yeah, I think, honestly, our U17 squad would probably play better in the league right now than our actual senior squad is playing. There's really nothing more I can say on Arsenal other than the fact that we're an absolute disgrace in every... Every year, you know, there's this tweet that goes around that's like, Arsenal, after 10 games or 15 games or 20 games, has the lowest points total ever in its history. And every year, the same stat occurs because somehow we get to... We're, we're just worse every single year. So I'm an unhappy Arsenal fan right now. I'm displeased. Arsenal games make me sad. I'm glad it's Christmas because otherwise everything would make me cry. Especially because you guys play the day after Christmas. So that'll be that'll put you in some good cheer, I'm sure. Well, I even need, I'll watch it. I always watch, but I'll cry. I always watch and suffer. John, <laughs> let me let me check real quick who you're playing on that day. Uh, I don't even The day after Christmas. I don't know, it's, it's the North London Chelsea. Derby. Pretty... You have Chelsea the day after Christmas. Oh, no. Th- that'll put you in, in some really, really good spirits, and I'm, I'm excited next, about that. Our next game is against Tottenham. That's true. Which is not good. Well, guys... We're going to leave this first part of the conversation here, and I'm going to do what I always do now and just give you a brief spoiler warning because the second part of our conversation is our Mandalorian recap. And at this point, if you haven't seen Chapter 13, just go and watch it because it is excellent, and we are about to break it all down. If you have already heard it, stay tuned, stay, stay, stay in this. If you haven't seen it, either just skip to the end and come back next week or pause this right now, go watch it, and then unpause us. And we will be here to break it all down right after you watch it. So John and I are super excited for this part of the podcast and you don't want to miss it. So stay tuned. And we are back with part two of the podcast where we are discussing, as we do while season two of The Mandalorian is underway, The Mandalorian. John. (laughs) (laughs) We need to keep that as a permanent drop for the podcast. Can you do that again? Okay, you can stop. Stop, stop. (laughs) This was John, I'm this is we're talking about chapter 13, and I'm gonna go ahead and say that this was the premiere episode of the entire show so far. Both seasons. This was this was the statement episode by Disney when it comes to the Mandalorian. Chapter 8 was really good. It was? It's, this may be it, but Chapter 8 was really good. I'm, I'm withholding my judgment for a little bit. Okay, but all right. That being said, this was a tremendous, tremendous episode. Yeah, well, let's start it off with the most important thing, which is that after 13 episodes, we finally have the reveal. Everyone watched Episode 1, and they saw this, this baby, and they thought that it was the cutest thing in the world, which it was. Yep. And everyone said, Baby Yoda. That is the name. And yep. then Disney was like, no, not Baby Yoda. It is the child. And everyone was like, no, we're going to call him Baby Yoda. <laughs> and then later we found out that it was in fact a he and it was still Baby Yoda. Correct. And now they have announced his name, which if you have not been on Twitter or haven't seen it, it is Grogu. Baby Yoda's name is Grogu. 
And still, everyone refers to him as Baby Yoda. And I, I don't blame them. I think, I mean, it's hard for me to adjust away from Baby Yoda and say Grogu. But I'm going to try just out of respect for him. Um, but honestly, like, like I think he's, for, is he forever going to be Baby Yoda as far as like the world is concerned? Yes. I just think about that Incredibles moment, you know, where he's like, math is math. And all I have to say is Baby Yoda is Baby Yoda. That's kind of my immediate, that's going to be the response to the Star Wars fan base constantly like grogu's fine i'm glad he has a name now but he is baby yoda in our hearts forever yeah yeah i think that i think that's fair so john let's go ahead and give ourselves a pat on the back because you particularly said that this was the episode that you expected to see ahsoka it happened you you called it good job i don't know if you were like just deep into the cut or if you had some sort of like just read a a blog or something but i will take absolutely no credit for that the uh, the guys over at Rebel Force Radio, a great Star Wars podcast, called that. I heard it. I said, that makes sense. It will definitely be in this episode, but I definitely... It is not my uh, my prediction credit to have. All right. Well, I guess, how do we want to tackle this episode? Because there was just so much. Do you want to jump, you want to jump right to the end and then kind of track back? Or do you want to go straight to the Ahsoka reveal first? Because that was a great scene. I think the Ahsoka reveal is the is one of the most important moments in this show. Because this episode, they've really leaned in a lot in this kind of set of chapters to really establishing a storyline. Occasionally, I've been concerned, you know, with one-off episodes that don't add anything. But on the whole, there's been a lot that we've learned compared especially to the first season. And Ahsoka showing up, if you're a Clone Wars fan, like that's A, that's just so cool. The um, If you aren't aware... Ahsoka is basically a gray Jedi here, which is why her lightsabers are not colored and she doesn't call herself a Jedi anymore, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating. And I I hope she reappears more. I'm not sure if she will, but it was it was excellent to see her. I think her duel with the Magistrate was awesome and one of my favorite scenes so far in The Mandalorian. I liked and her down. opening scene better when she's like taking really? them all down in the forest. I thought that was a great scene. I was concerned for a moment that they were going to kill her in that duel with the magistrate. Oh. And like, can you can you imagine? Oh my! The insanity of the uh, of the Star Wars fan base that would have been... died in that episode when she lost her first lightsaber in the water. You were like, yeah. oh no! <laughs> like, can you imagine? The world would have broken. Yeah, that would been crazy. Died. Yeah. Let me talk about my favorite part of this episode because my favorite part of this episode is as someone who's watched a bit of the Clone Wars knows like what's going on, but mostly cares about Mandalorian as its own entity. I said I said really in our first episode of doing this part of the show that I wanted to see where in the empire or the fallen empire we are in the world and what's going on. Like how does this fit into the Star Wars story? And the scene with Mando and Grogu and Ahsoka together had so much information beyond just the yeah. name. And I found that completely fascinating. Particularly, we now have really a, a fairly comprehensive Grogu backstory. We know that he was identified as a potential Jedi, that he was at the Jedi Temple, that he was undergoing training, and that he was removed. No, we don't know why or if there was some some sort of uh, knowledge that someone had, but he was removed from the Jedi Temple before Anakin Skywalker attacked the Jedi Temple and destroyed all the Padawans. And that tells us so much about the story. And I find that fascinating. And 
That was exactly what I was looking for from the show. I'm expecting to see more. And going forward, Ahsoka made a comment that Grogu is hiding how strong he is in the Force. And we have seen Grogu literally like stop giant monsters and like suspend them up in the air. And if he, so this, this, this is obviously a baby with training, with intelligence, who's, you know, not just a little bumbling baby and a lot of power that we have yet to tap into. Yeah. I think what's also interesting, you know, because of his attachment to Mando, she refuses to train him, right? Because she, you know, she's seen the same thing happen with Anakin, right? Of him having attachments, being trained, going to the dark side. And so maybe she's a little concerned about that. But to see kind of how, you know, what is this child's relationship to the Force going to be with this kind of father figure in his life? How is he going to develop? Um, She told him to go to Mountain, apparently, and reach Mm -hmm. out with the Force. And I think one interesting thing is, will we meet another Jedi in the series? Or even a Sith Lord or something? And I believe Ahsoka is not sure that there are any Jedi left. Well, she said there aren't many. Aren't many, okay. Remember, so, I mean, they, they're still around. Luke. Hidden. I, I somehow doubt Luke's going to... Yeah, I, I doubt I don't it think as that's well. Going to yeah, happen. I don't think so either. I think what's going to be interesting to see is, you know, A, will another Jedi show up in this series? And B, you know, how is Moff Gideon going to play into this? Because we have, what, three episodes left, I think? Maybe five, depending on how long they make it. You know, if we're going to have another Jedi show up aside from Ahsoka that may have a role in fighting Moff Gideon, and how is the Darksaber going to play on into all of this? And is Bo-Katan going to show back up? We've got a lot of moving parts now, and we don't really know how they fit in with Grogu yet. So that, I think that mountaintop is going to be very important. Yeah, I want to kind of summarize this part of the podcast by just, let's take us out full circle. Let's take a broad look at the galaxy as it currently stands. Mando thinks that he just accomplished his mission and he didn't, and he still has custody of the child. Moff Gideon is cruising around with a tracer on Mando's ship looking for the child. I'm like, I'm I'm like literally I'm one episode away from putting a full APB out on Boba Fett because where's, where's he? He's been like, he's supposed to be in this. He's vanished all of a sudden again. There are this. There's this other whole aspect of the story where there are other Mandalorian trying to stop Moff Gideon, while Mando himself has been so focused in this quest. There's just there's just so much going on right now that in so many different components. And I think it's fascinating to see. You know, by chapter sixteen, are we going to have some sort of closure and kind of putting those pieces together, or are there still going to be a lot of loose ends? Because right now it feels like there are so many loose ends which I'm fine with, but, you know, at some point, I felt like this episode went a long way towards starting to find some resolution, but it still feels like we're a really long way away. I have a feeling that we have at least a whole another season before a lot of these story arcs are wrapped up. That is my personal opinion. I think what this season may end with is either we learn something about the Mandalorians and the Baby Yoda arc isn't resolved entirely, or... We have some kind of dramatic showdown with Moff Gideon and other Jedi, uh, and we wait on some of the Mandalorian stuff until later in the series. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of potential conflicts as well. I 
love the direction overall. You know, there are there quibbles I have from time to time. There are things I'm not sure about. But overall, I love the direction this show is taking Star Wars. Yeah, I agree. I think it's been really, really good. I like, I like how it's doing new things while still g- tying us into the the whole order of things. Because I kind of went, I kind of went the entire first season without really knowing, having any bearings on where in the galaxy I was, or what time, or what the climate of the galaxy was. And I feel like I'm getting that now, and that's helpful because it helps put for a show that on its own stands alone really really well it still gives us a broader context and a better understanding to kind of help us see exactly where we are and i'm excited to keep going i think you know this show has many many seasons of potential oh yeah i think given the amount of shows that they want to develop i think we may not go beyond three seasons we could we could have a long-running you know lone ranger equivalent western series i don't think that's necessarily going to happen but there's so much material here. And I think, though, sometimes, occasionally I'm like, Favreau, do we, do we really want that? But most of the time, I'm pretty confident with his direction that he's taking things. So, Star Wars is here. It's glorious. I'm very happy with waiting on new Star Wars movies while we have content like this. John, do you have any previews for or predictions for Chapter 14? You know, this could be the Boba Fett episode. That's what I'm calling now. I think Boba Fett may show up in this episode. I'm not, you know, I have no nothing to back that up. That, that's entirely my prediction, not dr- drawn from any other source. But, you know, there's a kind of a gap in time that we have right now that we don't really know where exactly he's going to go next, as in Mando. And I think this may be where Boba Fett shows up and you're like, oh, hey there, Boba. That's not convenient. So that's what I'm calling. Yeah, I think I think. Well, I, I do think we know where Mando is trying to go. He's trying to go to the seeing stone on the mountain. The question is, is he going to get there in this episode? And I, I, I have a lot of confidence saying that the answer to that question is going to be no. I think, how they that, it, yeah. I think that chapter 14 is the episode when Mando gets waylaid by Moff Gideon. And I don't, know, I don't know exactly what happens, but I think that this is the episode where Moff Gideon is ready to pounce. I think there's going to be some sort of conflict, whether it's just Moff Gideon or an entire fleet. And Mando's doing some sort of escape. Maybe there's extra uh, Mandalorian who have to come help Mando. Maybe Boba Fett actually ends up helping Mando. Who knows? But I definitely think that we're going to get a situation where Mando is trying to get to the Seeing Stone. And Moff Gideon intercepts him somewhere along the way. And we have what essentially is going to be an escape episode. That's my expectation for Chapter 14. Yeah, I think both are reasonable. Who knows? Maybe even Boba is working for Moff Gideon. Who knows? Yeah, there's so much we don't know. But it's possible. But yes. Yeah, and I think we can leave this conversation here. Obviously, we're recording this on a Tuesday, so we'll know in just a few short days. And we'll be back with another episode right after that to break it all down. Uh, Let us know what you're liking about Mandalorian. Let us know if you have any Mandalorian questions or anything that you would like us to try to tackle in regard to the show, the greater Star Wars universe. Or if you want us to talk about a different show, like we can do Marvel Cinematic Universe coverage or... Really, whatever you want. I mean, we're, we're basically just a sports podcast in name only at this point. So, and we're kind of <laughs> owning that. But whatever you guys are interested in, we are absolutely here for it. And we will be happy to provide it. John, any uh, parting words for the people to do this for the rest of this week as we head into Christmas season? Do you want to, you know, after making them hold off on their Christmas celebrations, do you want to finally give them the permission that they need to 
celebrate their holiday to the fullest extent? Well, my Christmas decorations are up. It's December 1st. I've been listening to Christmas music for the past few days. There's no reason for you not to have Christmas things up at this point. I give you my blessing, oh, people of Crunching Tackles, to decorate as much as you want. And, um, you know, if you want to send us any Star Wars Christmas things you have around your house, um, I think that's something that we'd love to see. So please add us. Send us on, on Instagram. As always, give us a follow on social media if you do not already. And, uh, yeah, if there are issues that you've wanted to hear us talk about, but we've been in other countries, now is the time to let us know. Yeah, John, with that, I'm going to wrap this podcast up with a challenge to you that I'm, I'm completely springing on you right now. But I think we should each do one day of an Instagram story takeover and see which one of us has better Star Wars Christmas decorations. Ooh, that's true. I like this. You, do you accept my challenge? I do. Okay. The other question is, where is our the rest of our social media content that the people all want? I've, I've, I will get it. I'm working on it. I'm... <laughs> that's what you said last week. Yeah, that's true. It'll happen at some point. It'll happen at some point. We have pictures coming, pending. Yeah, Who we knows? have stupendous pictures, really. Yeah, but they're, they're quite good, but they're just sitting in limbo on my wife's camera. <laughs> Why can't you just download them yourself? I, 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 if I have to take matters into my own, my own hands, best believe I shall. And with that, guys, make sure to look for our Instagram stories where my five-foot-tall Darth Vader Christmas inflatable is going to completely outshine anything that John Necrosoft thinks he can bring to this conversation. And with that, Probably. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your week, and we'll be back. Stay tuned early next week for more sports coverage and more Mandalorian recaps. And until then, we'll talk to you guys later. All right. Cheers and Merry Christmas, gang. Okay.